0: Let me just Why live. worry
1: and prepare for the future when I can just scramble whenever it arrives,
2: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> despite yeah. all my rage, right guys
3: exactly. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, longtime appreciator of all kinds of gravy. All right.
2: I, I am. Oh, all right. Laugh it out. It's cool. I'm co-host Jeremy, and I had a driveway moment with... Mark Mothersbaugh, and his story from Bullseye with Jesse Thorne today. And I wasn't paid by Devo or Jesse Thorne to say this.
1: What was the moment? What, what happened? It was a
2: driveway moment. It's like a thing they, they like start telling a story, and they line it up, and you just like have to sit in your driveway and listen to the rest of the story ah uh-huh. okay so there's a good story and it is related to this episode tangentially really it's out there it's a mystery i planted wow. little hints little easter eggs where you'll have to just google the words and then you'll get it right away this is the worst and longest title go ahead oh, peter. actually i think it's the,
4: <laughs> i think it's the the best i like the little like mystery mission you've sent people out on well i am co-host peter cook And as you're about to find out, we have an even Michigan-Pennsylvania split among co-hosts on this episode and are covering a former Motown act on Philadelphia International Records so we can safely say, Motown Philly back again.
2: (laughs) I'm here for that. Peter has the most adorable smile on his face right now.
1: (laughs) As he should. He should be proud of himself for that gem.
0: (laughs) Oh my god. Uh, okay, it's, it's my turn? Yes.
1: It is. It sure okay.
0: is. Okay, hi everyone. I am Lola Kinks uh, out of Philadelphia. Uh, my real name is L'Oreal and uh, I am uh, so happy to be here this evening. I am an artist, a well-being practitioner and educator, but I think I am better known as Michael Jackson's illegitimate stepchild.
1: Oh, Ooh, wow. interesting.
2: The only one?
0: Yeah. I don't know. I, that's just what my mother told
2: me. Ooh, another mystery.
0: This is, these are the things she's told me since, I mean, f- for years now, but, you know, I never got to get any answers. R.I.P. Yeah.
2: All right.
1: It remains <laughs> a mystery. <laughs>
0: We'll we'll talk more about it as we go through. Right. Like we'll talk a little bit more. Yeah. I might I, dig I in a little bit to. more. <laughs> yeah. I might dig in a little bit more.
4: Is are, are there any other details about yourself you want to discuss before we get into what you came to talk about today?
0: You know what? I would just love to get into the music. I do some DJ stuff. I teach. I uh, work in mental health and human sexuality education, um, and all of that is bring you know brings me a lot of joy. But I would say that really getting into music and music history is really like what puts the biggest smile on my face. And I love nerding out about it. So I'm really excited to get into that with all of you tonight.
1: Great. You are in the right place. exactly (laughs) what I was (laughs) going to say.
4: So, so yeah. Tell us what you uh, brought to the table.
0: All right. So I am very thrilled to bring um, the Jacksons eponymous 1976 album, The Jacksons. Um, And it is the 11th studio album by them, which is wild when I was thinking about their history. But yeah, I am a big fan of this album. And I think even more than I had realized I have loved many of the songs on the album for a long, long time. And there's one in particular, and when we get there, I will, (laughs) you'll know which one it is. Um, But, you know, this one in particular, it really stands out for me just thinking about what was going on for them at the time, what brought them to Philadelphia International Records. Um, As you had mentioned before, that this is an album that was on that label, Um, but specifically also like Epic. Mm-hmm. And then moving away from Motown. So there's so much scandal in yeah. that whole story <laughs> with them, uh, you know, switching things up and Joe Jackson and why he felt compelled to move them along in their process and their transitioning over to a new label. So, yeah, there was a lot of incredible work that I think came out of the collaboration, though, that they did with uh, Philadelphia International. And um, yeah, I'm a big fan of this one. So that's what I'm bringing to the table.
1: There's definitely a lot more of a story surrounding this record than people realize, especially because this is kind of a forgotten record and kind of forgotten time period in the Jackson's, the Jackson Fives career. So a lot to get into, but what track are we going to listen to first before we dive into the details?
0: Let's start off with uh, the first one, Enjoy Yourself.
1: Perfect. This one is written and produced by Gamble and Huff and arranged by Bobby Martin, who we've mentioned on the last two episodes.
0: Gosh. Okay. So I, (laughs) I love this track so much. There is this bounciness to this track and it's so festive. And every time that I hear it, I don't know, it just sets off for me like these affirmations. And I have, I've tossed this around in my head um, a little bit about writing down some of the lyrics and like seeing like, you know, what it would be like to every day, just kind of start the day off with just like the, enjoy yourself. (laughs) Why don't you live, live the life you got. Come on, girl, let's get it. While the music's hot. Woo.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Inspirational quotes.
0: (laughs) I mean, yeah, just like
1: print those out and like put them on the mirror, so you can just recite them every morning. Like exactly, you could this do is, worse. <laughs>
0: this is what I'm saying. So I was like, let me just will write it out, put it on my mirror, and then just say it over and over again. But I mean, the lyrics of this track—it's not rocket science here. Like they, you know, it's the same thing over and over again. But every time I walk away from it, it still feels like this just like very festive, like I said, very bouncy. I've heard this term tossed around a little bit about um, the style of it being like vaudevillian. And so, which is very interesting to me. I don't know that I would have used that language and maybe I don't even really know exactly how to apply that to a song, but it was interesting to me. But I, I call myself like this self-proclaimed joy activist. and So, you know, I which, which for me is all about like embodying joy and centering joy um, and this... The song was certainly uh written in that vein and and i love love every bit of that, so yeah, just like overwhelming positivity from this track
2: yeah i need a I need a joy activist here. I was listening to it was this song in particular that sparked this thought in my mind, but we're in Michigan right now, and it's rainy, and I was stressing on stuff, and I was you know reviewing the album again before the show, and I was like. What are these guys so happy about (laughs) in my head? And I was just like, whoa, Jer, calm down, dude. You're in like space right now. Let people
1: enjoy things, bro. Yeah.
0: I'm here for you. If you need a joy activist in your life, I will do, we will just sing this song over and over together.
4: that, That really, that thing is, that might totally throw off the dynamic of the podcast if uh, Jeremy were lose his
5: curmudgeonly ways
0: I'll pull back I'll pull back
1: yeah if we throw off the dynamic we're gonna we're gonna lose our entire fan base if we throw off the dynamic so I will revel in my misery for the pod guys
0: <laughs> just do it to yourself just in your own space your own room you know and then podcast a the whole other thing.
4: Okay. <laughs> this was the only song from this album that I recognized going in. I did know this song in advance. It was a hit, correct?
0: Yes, it, it definitely was. And yeah, I, and I'll get into other ones later. But yeah, this one was the hit, really, from the album.
1: Yeah, there was only two singles off this record, and the second single didn't do nearly as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interestingly enough, this is actually. Their first official platinum certified single because previous to this, Motown was not reporting to RIAA, so none of their previous singles had the like you know official RIAA stamp on it,
4: even though, like, their first four singles were number ones i believe
1: (laughs) oh yeah i mean (laughs) jackson mania had been in full effect by this point like people have heard this group obviously yeah
4: right because it was
0: 78 like they'd signed in 78 and then by the time this came it was like 75 when they parted ways so it's like seven years of like millions of dollars of you know or, or you know the hits that had kept coming
4: did you say 78 that they signed oh sorry
0: 68 sorry 68 yeah 68 to 75
1: and then i think the first record was 69 right
0: yeah that was the first record and then by 75 so i thank you sean for bringing that up because this was also from what i had read was like also the first gold album for the same reason
1: yes it was
0: So it's so wild just thinking like, okay, Motown, (laughs) they could have been like plat, like multi-platinum for years and years and years. And they just didn't have like those, those records of that. It
4: it took them moving to a, another label to get that recognition.
0: (laughs) Yeah.
1: Right. And, And you know, this record is not even close to as successful as, you know, some other big early ones from Motown, but interesting little factoid there. Um, I, I I'd also read a few people noting that this song is a really good example of Michael's vocal style starting to change. You can kind of hear the more percussive elements going on in here that became more of sure. his trademark. Whereas a lot of the early Jackson Five stuff, you know, he has that that soaring soprano melody over top of everything. But he's kind of really coming into his own a little bit on here, and, and that's definitely a running theme of this record in a lot of ways that we'll probably keep talking about.
0: Yeah, I hear that for sure. Um, that was something that stood out for me too, because have any of you seen like the Jacksons movie that came out like on VH One yeah. many, many moons ago. I've
4: seen the one that was I think the Jacksons an American dream from the early nineties is is that yep. that's the one?
0: That's the one, yeah. And so like in that I mean and at that point that, that was a miniseries. So I, if I remember correctly, like there's a point in the film, I think where they're like exploring that because, you know, Michael is dealing with his own dysphoria about like the way that he looks um, and how he, f- you know, that's making him feel. And they explore like the arc with like him and his mother and his mother being like so very nurturing to him um, as he's going through these changes and like his voice also shifting and like what that was like for him to go from being like this little kid, like superstar and having this like voice that was, you know, so angelic, angelically soulful. And then, you know, getting to this point, I guess, and uh, what, 75, he would have been uh, 17. So, you know, his, like you said, Sean, like his voice is just definitely, it's, it's, it's shifting, or it's like like changing a mm. bit, and it. But it. But it sounds so beautiful the way that it, it comes across. Absolutely,
1: and you know I think this was already right, always pretty a joyous band in a lot of the songs they were putting out. You know they kind of had like almost like bubblegum pop vibes in the early days, but mm-hmm. it kind of feels like the joy that it's expressed on this record is a little more about them coming into their own for the first time because Motown was extremely restrictive and did not allow them to do any of their own songwriting or really make any calls on their own. So this is like the first time where they're starting to get a little bit of a taste of having a little bit of control in their music and breaking out of this kind of oppressive record deal that they've had since they're, you know, since they were little kids basically. So there's some, you know, inherent excitement going on in this record from that yeah definitely
0: and, and I, I wasn't lost on me also like the last album being like moving violation <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know and if you look at like the album cover there's like a police officer and they have the car and it's like this incredible foreshadowing to me where it's like yep and then you know going places being after this album but uh with epic but like that was that that I always have found, like, so funny. And then I was thinking also about, like, the symbolism with their move to Epic, which is an epic deal, because Joe was able to get, apparently, 10 times the royalty rate that they got with Motown.
1: Yeah, I heard some conflicting reports on, like, the exact percentages, but it was... Somewhere along the lines of they're getting close to 2% of sales from Motown. And then with Epic, they moved up to closer to 20%. So wow. like a massive shift in the quality of their deal. And you know, from everything I've heard, Motown was pretty infamous for not giving their artists very good deals, at least in the early days. Um, so mm-hmm. yeah, there was there was reason to be excited with this move for them. And I, the other thing I've been thinking about a lot in regards to this is part of the reason they left Motown is because they were as an intentional shift away from the jackson five being a priority you know they had lost most of their momentum by you know the early to mid 70s kind of thing and with the the members of the band starting to mature and michael going through vocal changes motown just didn't know what to do with them anymore and the formula wasn't working and we've talked before about how philadelphia international kind of has this more mature sophisticated feel to it so them maturing as a band, it makes just so much sense for them to come to Philadelphia and try something completely new as they're all shifting in their artistic pursuits.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel that. And I mean, it's not, it's not anything different than, like, I feel like they've been paying homage to that sound for so long that it made sense almost that they would eventually make their way to Philly.
1: Yeah, and I had forgotten about this, but they'd actually on several different records had covered some Philadelphia-related songs. Uh-huh. So they were, you know, longtime fans of this sound, and they were ready for it. You know, they they knew what they were doing with this move.
2: Y'all got another song for us to sample?
0: Yeah, so I would love it. If we just kept the vibes going with the joy and the the dancing and the music, move on and keep on dancing. That that's that's my track. Fine,
1: yeah, absolutely. <laughs> this is uh <laughs> this one is written, produced, and arranged by my dude Dexter Wansel.
3: Dexter. Keep on dancing Let the music take your mind I keep on dancing Have a real, real good time I keep on-
2: Sensing a strong Stevie Wonder influence in that Michael Jackson vocal take there
1: oh absolutely especially in those first like 20-30 seconds when he does like that does that like kind of rough vocal accent like fully Stevie Wonder vibes going on there and even the mm. the synth bass production is very reminiscent of the stuff that Stevie was getting into in the, the mid-70s um, That early, the the synth bass on this was also played by Dexter Wansel I gotta say
4: yeah, distinctly him. Mm-hmm. So
0: beautiful. So beautiful. There's also just this this opening riff that reminds me, it's like was Johnny Guitar Watsony to me.
5: Yeah. Like
0: when I was listening to it, it just like when it started off and it's very quick, but then it just like eases into that groove that like was, you know, has been said you know it's very Dexter Wanzelli but that Stevie Wonder influence is just so on point and the inflections like just Michael was god he was so into those inflections and like you had mentioned Sean like with the percussive and like all just like these different sound effects that he does in this on this album uh, especially just stands out to me as I guess I feel kind of like it was, it's a moment where he's like, you know what? I can do these things that I've been wanting to do for a long time. Yeah, <laughs> totally. And nobody
4: let me do I them. I had a thought when I was checking this out, since most of it was new to me that, you know, at first, as much as I liked it, there was also a part of me that was like, well, you can see like him and the Michael Jackson in the hands of, you know, Gamble and Huff, like what they're capable of versus like, the stuff he did a few years later with Quincy Jones, which was just on another level, but it it occurred to me that, okay, yeah, I'm sure Quincy Jones was a big component of that, but Michael probably just also wasn't at that point himself yet at this point. Like he was still growing.
2: I feel like that's a thing, especially for younger. I mean, he was singing for a long time, but he's also like getting to that age where he's actually able to sort through his artistic influences and I feel like that's a thing when people are kind of in that process where they try on different influences more brazenly, I guess. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah.
0: Have you seen this picture? There's there's this picture from, I feel like it might have been maybe a little bit earlier than this time. Um, And it's like Michael, and it looks like he's kind of like, pe- like peering over, like looking at Stevie Wonder, just like studying him. <laughs> It is a beautiful black and white photo. And every time I see it, I just think about like, wow, you know, like he really went through all of these different artists that brought him so much joy and like inspiration. And he, like, he, he's like, I'm going to, I'm gonna learn everything that I can about them. I'm going to, you know, practice and I'm going to do whatever I can to also probably be better. Even if he wasn't necessarily thinking that. I I, I mean, I think that he was. I actually just read <laughs> something recently where that was <laughs> something that was on his mind a lot. He wanted to learn as much as he could and study the greats so that he could be be better than them in a way that's still paying homage. Not just like, I just want to be better than you, just for my own ego. Yeah.
1: Barry Gordy had said that this was the last group he ever signed that had the level of like drive and passion that some of the early Motown artists had. So, mm. I mean, and you know, there's a whole complicated history as to why that drive was there with, you know, their family life and everything. But yeah, Michael was, you know, he, he was putting in work. He was not just a guy who was born with great vocals and... And that applied to so many different areas, like his his vocal talents, his songwriting, You know, studying James Brown concerts to learn dance moves. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that you mentioned the thing about the, the picture of him watching Stevie Wonder, because from what I've heard in the recording session, he spent a lot of time very, very closely watching Gamble and Huff at the piano, and had said that he learned a lot from songwriting, from just watching those guys in the process of creating this record.
0: That's so interesting. I I saw uh, a clip of, uh, you know, where they're they're showing like Joe Tarsia, who just, oh my goodness, uh, recording engineer extraordinaire and of course Sigma Sound. But they are showing them in the studio recording this. And you can see that type of the revere that like Michael, he just was so, I think, interested in learning like the ins and outs of like the whole this whole industry and especially with this like transition and like them getting this creative, them being able to have some creative control and, um, We'll get more into it uh, but there's you know another song that i'm excited to get into that certainly relates to michael's creativity and uh his artistic expression
1: mm-hmm. so we mentioned the stevie wonder influence on the first part of keep on dancing but i feel like when it switches tempos it has like a it switches to a strong oj's influence even in the way that like the vocals are interacting on this so i think it's kind of a maybe some interesting parallels there you know being a Detroit to Philadelphia transplant and showing <laughs> both those influences in just one track.
4: That was the moment that they moved right there.
1: <laughs> yep. <laughs> and I think there's also a lot of parallels between that song and one that they had just done in 74 on the album dancing machine. If you listen to the opening track on that, I am love, it has kind of a similar structure to this where it's slow and spacey at the beginning and then picks up as it goes.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, uh, yeah, I, oh, I was going to say, um, about that with this track in particular. I, it, with the same thing with like, enjoy yourself, like this keep on dancing until you can't dance no more. And like this joy activist part of me, this, that I continue to just be like, okay, you know what, these times, times are hard. What are you going to do? How are you going to take care of yourself? Like, how do you keep on trucking, keep on moving? Mm-hmm. And uh, this keep on dancing until you can't dance no more. I mean, that's not anything new. They've been talking about dancing throughout their career, but I just feel like especially with this album, it was like this shift also like culturally. and I'm you just brought up like from Detroit, Philly, and I'm thinking about myself as like a transplant also to Philadelphia. And so much of what I, you know, I've learned about myself by living here. Um, and it wasn't like the easiest place to love for me um, in particular, but it makes me think a whole lot about like what it must have been like for them to, you know, at this point, they had been, what, in L.A. for many years? And then come to Philadelphia? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, so because Motown had, you know, once Motown had kind of gotten rid of, like, all the all the folks that they had on staff, like, the you know, the dancers and like all of that, they were in LA for many years. And so I can only imagine like what that <laughs> transition was like going from LA to Philadelphia and like the time that they spent here and like what if, what impact that might've had on Michael um, kind of coming into himself as well. You know, like in my mind, I think about like eventually him getting to like the bad and dangerous years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm like, oh yeah, Philly. <laughs> <laughs> well yeah, that's <laughs> like,
4: good. Like, yeah, it becomes Philly. like it becomes like New Jack Swing by the dangerous album.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah yeah yeah. I mean and that Teddy Riley like loud and proud like in that. And so it, you know that's what I was thinking about when I was thinking about this album. I'm like, huh? I wonder if he was just like, you know what, just like that, all that energy that I got from Philadelphia, you know, it's coming out of me, you know, down the line, many years down the line at this point.
1: Well, and then the other side of it with a lot of the gamble and huff, Philadelphia International was that, you know, message in the music and having that like intentional positivity and like we need to all work together to make a better space for each other kind of thing. Mm -hmm. it's a subtle shift from the the earlier positivity of Jackson 5 stuff but if you think about it like a lot of that was kind of more about like let's be this happy group to sell records kind of thing and that was always the focus but it's like a little deeper out here in Philadelphia and I think when you listen to this in that context it makes sense there's just a little bit more weight to what they're talking about even though these are still simple songs about dancing there's just there's a subtle shift going on there.
0: I love that. Yeah. I mean, I think there's like a consideration of like what, like you said, so in the past, it's like, okay, bouncy, positivity, like all of that. And then getting to this point, it's like, you can't help but think about what else was going on just in like the country at the time, just like culturally. Also for myself, like being a Black woman and just, I, I can't help but think about like, all right in... 1976. All right. Bicentennial. Like, yeah, disco was, was popping. And, you know, why were people so connected? What compelled them to just kind of lose themselves in that music? And I can't help but also think about, because for myself, especially as someone who plays music out um, and DJs and a lot of the music that I play is like disco boogie and stuff like that. I know for me, it's kind of like calling back to a time where like there was so much that was going on for folks, you know, with social justice and race relations and everything like that. And and going to the disco was like a place where it was like everyone could like be themselves and you know, be who you are. And it's like we're gonna lose ourselves. We're gonna come together and it's like kind of very spiritual assembly. And it's like we were equals in this space. And there's like something so beautiful about that. So it's not When I think about this, it's not just like, yeah, we're going to just keep on dancing. It's also just like, it's in consideration of like all of these things that were going on at the time. And this is a way in which like we're choosing to come together and engage, joining together in community.
1: Absolutely. I love that. So let's get into another song in a minute here. But real quick, I want to address a couple of the questions that some people might have. Why are they the Jacksons and not the Jackson Five anymore? It was just,
4: it was, it was just the S and the five look a lot alike. It was a error at the pressing <laughs> plant,
1: <laughs> and they decided to roll with it instead of like having to pay for reprinting. Yeah, good guess, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> I'm guessing the great question.
4: No, I, I was going to pretend that I am guessing this, and uh, go ahead, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know why. <laughs>
1: The Jackson Five had signed their deal with CBS Epic Records in June of 1975, but their Motown contract that they had initially signed didn't actually run out until March of 76. So, as a result, Barry Gordy sued them for breach of contract and then ended up settling with keeping the name the Jackson Five. So, they were forced to change the name and they just went with the Jacksons because that was the, you know, obviously the closest thing they could come up with that still fit the legal parameters. This record was released in november of 1976 just shortly after the move from motown and then the other big thing with this record is this is the debut of the youngest brother randy jackson jermaine jackson had quit the group when they left motown partly because he wanted to start a solo career and also because he was married to barry gordy's daughter hazel and i'm sure that would have been real awkward
4: (laughs) Thanksgiving. Scandalo. <laughs> yeah.
1: So Randy had been touring with the group since I believe about 1972 but this is the first time that he is on record with the Jacksons. He's playing percussion and was a multi-instrumentalist and eventually um, contributed a lot to some of the songwriting in records with the group after this. So the, the Jacksons, the lineup on this record is Michael who was 18 at the time it was released, Tito who was a guitarist and was 23, Marlon Jackson, who was 19. Jackie, who did co-lead vocals on the first song, Enjoy Yourself. He was 25. And then Randy was just 15 when this record came out. Wow. Yeah.
0: Yep. Oh. Oh, and I have actually some trivia on this, though. So Jackie, so that this is, I I don't know how many people actually know this. So three of the brothers, the names that we all know them by are not their real names. So randy's real name is steven tito's real name is tariano and jackie's real name is sigmund esco s es- esco
2: that's the only one that makes sense that they would change it the other two i don't even <laughs> <understand>. <laughs> especially steven to randy like is that just a, a preference i guess
0: Well, it's, it's, I I watched a video not too long ago of of them talking about like the nicknames that they had given one another. And, you know, for instance, they gave, uh, I think Michael, they called him like gibbets. And like the person (laughs) who's interviewing them is like, so why do you call him gibbets? And they're like, we don't actually know. (laughs) (laughs) It's just like stuck.
1: Definitely a sibling thing going on there.
0: (laughs) Exactly. I love it so much.
1: (laughs) All right, cool. Let's get into another track. What's the next one we're listening to, Lola?
0: Oh, God. So, my heart. The next one is Blues Away, and we'll talk more about it after.
1: All right. This one is fully written by Michael Jackson. It's his first songwriting credit, and it was produced by Gamble & Huff, plus McFadden & Whitehead, plus Dexter Wansel. Plus the Jacksons, and it was arranged by Dexter Wansel. Let's get into it.
4: That is an embarrassment of riches, right there.
3: you feel, I know that it's true because it's for you. You know that it's true, but you try to be hard to receive. My X word is for you, know you.
4: sounds like Michael Jackson.
1: Right. I mean, it's just like if no one had ever heard that song before, you could tell him it was an unreleased B-side from off the wall or thriller and no one would be Mm -hmm. surprised. It just fits right in. Mm
4: -hmm. It's hard to believe that's his Mm -hmm. first songwriting credit. It it sounds like his, uh, aesthetic is at least forming into what it would become, you know? Yeah.
1: And, you know, I feel like a lot of more casual, michael jackson fans are going to be aware of the early jackson five hits and you know obviously aware of off the wall and thriller and bad and everything but this is really the lost period so i feel like for a lot of people it's got to be really interesting to hear that transition there and it, it will make make those two kind of very different sounds make a lot more sense when you hear the middle ground
0: i love that so much yeah i it, it That speaks to my heart so much because it makes me think about like those, yeah, those missing pieces from so many listeners of different artists. And they're like, wait, how did they get from this to that? You know, if they've heard like the Jackson 5 and then eventually, you know, when it gets to like Destiny and Triumph and Victory and all that stuff. And they've heard, you know, uh, Dancing Machine and stuff like that. And they've never heard this. Mm -hmm. They've never heard, you know, like the, this track... I feel it certainly lays the foundation for a lot of explorations into Michael's psyche in later years. So, like, this is, like, the first time I feel like, like, we're getting an authentic kind of experience of, like, what it might be like for him living in this state of depression that, like, later on, we learned that he was living with. but. It's how vulnerable, like you're eight, 17, maybe when you yeah, were there, 18. Yeah. And like, how vulnerable that you're putting yourself out there like this out in the world as this teen, you know, and you're already like the, the center of so much discussion. And at the time, you know, this is like pre-plastic surgery, Michael. This is where he's going through a lot. And I've mentioned before about dysphoria, about like the way that he looks. And yeah, I just, that, my, my heart
1: my heart heart beats for this one. Mm-hmm. yeah, it's very telling that his first ever songwriting credit is a song about depression. But as you had mentioned while we were listening to it, you know, it's a it's a heavy subject matter, but the groove is just so good. You know, mm-hmm. it, you can tell he's trying to work through this on this record, and we're all mm-hmm. have the privilege of listening to it.
0: Mm-hmm. The sexiness of that groove is undeniable. You know, it's, Absolutely. and I <laughs> do appreciate the idea of like, all right, you know, like, how do you, how are we going to get through this? We're just going to, like, we're going to groove on through this, you know, like, it's going to bring the sexiness, the sadness, the all of it. It's like all lives together in this one human who's, you know, trying to mm-hmm. get through it. And all the time, to- at the time also, I remember hearing, I guess it was, oh, Maybe it was Leon, but he was talking about how um, at one point during this time, uh, Michael had said that he needed some sneakers. And so, and I'm, I'm so mad. I don't know where this was. I'm like, where was the store? Because I want to go and just see, like, and so, you know, he, he said, okay, well, I'll go take you to get some sneakers. And so they're at the store and uh, kind of one by one. Teenage girls, as we did at a time, I remember being a teeny bopper, got wind of that Michael was in the the um, the store. And then it was like one person and then it was another. And then before they knew it, it was a bunch of like young girls outside the store just like trying to get close to Michael. And thinking about like this track in particular and how he is like really kind of succumbing to this this depression and he he's struggling with it and here he is you know the center of this fanfare and like this adoration from these teenage girls and what that must have been like to kind of hold both of those things at such a young age
1: yeah absolutely and as a 17 year old too i mean that's that's a tough time where you got to figure shit out, even when you're not a child star, you know? So just, ima- mm-hmm. I can't even imagine all the added layers and pressure and complication going on in his life at this point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: But Can we also talk about like that weird beatbox thing? Yeah,
1: it's like it almost, it sounds almost comical, but it's again, him working out these ideas that would become his complete signature in just a couple of years. So true. And then, you know, going back to the uh tying this song in to all these different uh elements and everything, one thing I'd read is that he was heavily inspired by the Jackie Wilson song, "Lonely Teardrops" in writing this in wanting to write you know this like sexy song about depression and having those two things exist within the same music, so you know there's always roots going on well, if you guys want
2: to get filled in on all of the details of the Jackson family. You can take a time machine to like 97, probably turn on VH one, watch the American dream series. Uh,
1: but that's the only way people can learn more about the Jackson's. Yeah. If you don't have a time machine, you're fucked. You've just got this podcast and that's it. Well, we
2: can't even cover it on this podcast. We're like running out of time and we've, barely scratched the surface
4: well yeah i Mm -hmm. mean obviously with the the jacksons there's a lot to unpack there's a lot of problematic things and it's not just michael uh, as sean was telling us while we were listening to one of the songs you said that uh There's some other members uh, that the family, uh, is it Randy, you were telling us? Yeah,
1: Randy had a lot of struggles in his own life, as I'm sure each member of this band did from the way they were raised and the family life. Mm And, you know, even just coming up as a child star has all of its own issues and baggage. So very complicated situation, a lot going on. Much has been said about a lot of these things. And, you know, there's probably still more things to be discovered and also, you know, information that will probably never be privileged to as the public. But yeah, there's a lot going on with the Jackson family for sure. Sean, could you
2: find anything that sounds like the Jacksons in the whole world?
1: (laughs) I did. I have a one hour playlist, 15 tracks of some influences and things we've mentioned on the show and some similar philly style soul music from this time period so i put uh put a mcfadden and whitehead track on here i put a silvers track on here um, the hip-hop heads will recognize it from Jay dilla's donuts the song only one can win i think there's also some parallels between the silvers and the jacksons they're both musical families just one got a little bigger than the other did
2: I'll have to check that out. I've seen the Silvers records around, but I've
1: never picked one up and listened to it. So,
0: Leon Silvers, Misdemeanor.
1: (laughs) All right. Yeah, Leon Silvers is also such an amazing producer. He's one of those guys where if if he's doing some arranging and producing on a record, it's going to be good. He did a couple tracks on that Brothers Johnson record that we covered way back in season one. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, O.J.'s are on this playlist, People's Choice, Lou Rawls, who we just talked about, MFSB, of course, I put the their version of the song Summertime from one of their later records. That, actually, I think it was also in 76, the album Summertime. It's an interesting arrangement and kind of shows you where that group was around the time that they were working on this record. Put a later D.D. Sharp song on there <laughs> where she's covering I'm Not In Love, Jeremy's favorite track of all time.
4: Actually, that's the, like the 110 CCs song i think jeremy could tolerate yeah that was one i
1: didn't hate (laughs) well wait till you hear dd sharp doing it with a philly soul twist it's it's, pretty awesome it's
4: actually pretty great um one of those songs that the original recording relies heavily on the production the specific production they did for that but hearing a different take on it it's like hey this is a really good song even without all the ornamentation on it
1: Mm mm-hmm absolutely I put Jackie Wilson's Lonely Teardrops on here that I mentioned was uh, inspiration for Michael's songwriting. And then wrapping it up with some stylistics and the song The Sweetest Pain from Time is Slipping Away by Dexter Wansel. And of course, there's a couple other Jackson's tracks. I put um, my actual favorite track from this album is the song Good Times, which we did not feature a clip of, so you can look forward to that on the playlist. And then I also put one of their earlier... Philly soul covers or the version of them doing ready or not. Here I come from the third album, as well as uh, the track. I am love from dancing machine that I'd mentioned. So you can find that playlist on Spotify. Just search. I'd buy that podcast, all one word to find this and all of our other episode accompanying playlists.
4: And if you are on social media, we're on a couple platforms on there on Instagram. We are at I'd buy that podcast And on Facebook, you can also search that, I'd Buy That or I'd Buy That for a Dollar. We should come up. We will post about uh, episodes coming up as well as when they become available. We occasionally put some other content on there as well. So check us out on social media. And other people
2: post records that they find and like. So if you're into like a little camaraderie in the I'd Buy That world,
4: it's a good place. Yeah, we have the I'd Buy That for a Dollar Facebook group as well then you can uh join in on the fun there share your dollar bin finds with the
1: little community all right it's uh it's plug time now lola you got any any plugs you want to hit the people with
0: yeah, um, so I mentioned before that I play records out every now and again. I have a radio show uh, on Great Circles Radio here in Philadelphia. It's an online uh, radio station, and uh, it the show's called Pretty Mess with Lola Kinks, where I basically go through uh, many of the tracks that have shaped my musical palette and then others that are like new favorites that set my soul on fire. So, you know, it can get... Pretty pretty messy in one show it could be all what one would say all over the place but to me you know i always make it pretty i feel like it it has connective tissue it works well so (laughs) that's every second uh wednesday on greatcircles.net
1: right on very cool
4: well well while you're here before we get we get any last thoughts on the uh jacksons i just gotta ask uh you know obviously your dj name lola kinks obviously you're a big kinks fan is your favorite album "Lola versus Power Man and the Money Go Round," or is it, a <laughs> or is it a different <laughs> one? <laughs>
0: You know it's so funny, um, and this is what's wild. My uh, knowledge base of the Kinks is not as expansive as I would have, as I would like it to be, and I'm still exploring. But what stood out to me was when I heard first heard the song "Lola," mm-hmm. and I listened to the lyrics of it. And I've been someone who's worked in sexuality and gender um, uh, studies for. M- many years in my life and just kind of hearing the lyrics to it in the way that it's explored that you know he ends up finding himself falling or connecting with this person who you know now we have the language of someone who is a woman of trans experience mm-hmm. I just hadn't heard anyone speak in that way uh in a way that seemed a lot more like affirming and validating then and that just you know was something that really stood out to me and I had mentioned also before, like Lola is a name I felt connected to for a long time. And then I have curly hair and I've studied sexuality. So it's like this kinks thing, my love affair with the song, all of it just like makes sense. And I'm going to, I'm going to use this and it's worked well for me so far.
4: <laughs> That's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. It is a pretty incredible that Ray Davis in 1970 wrote a song on that topic, like you said with that perspective or that outlook
5: mm-hmm. you know yeah
4: some of the mm-hmm. language in it is a bit dated but what do you expect it's 51 years ago <laughs> yeah for sure
0: yeah and and if you go and you like read about it the ways in which people respond to it it's like wow we to this day have we really heard a song that really kind of speaks in that same way but you know without the language the dated language like you mentioned mm-hmm.
4: Mm-hmm. well awesome going back to the jacksons do we have any closing thoughts on the you know this album or in I mean, once again yeah the jacksons in general are a, that's a tough one to summarize in, in a few quick thoughts but
0: i would love to say one last thing about this album um in particular in the song um show you the way to go which i think is a really standout one and i think a lot of people who even to this day listen and like Quiet Storm Radio or just like classic R&B radio will hear this often. But this one, I think some people think of it more as being kind of like this about a relationship or just like romance or something like that. But I just love this like message of unity and connecting like folks, black folks connecting with other black folks and like helping one another to kind of uplift ourselves, you know, like support one another and just the uplifting of our experience and doing it together. And I just really get a lot of life from that, especially in these times. So I I really, really appreciate that song in many ways.
1: And definitely a running theme of the Philadelphia International Records, as we've mentioned. And this is the final of our run of our tribute to Philadelphia International Records with their 50 year anniversary. And it's been fun. There's a lot of great music. I'm sure we'll be featuring more Philly soul in the future.
5: Thank you.
2: Well, thanks for coming on. You're a fantastic co-host.
0: Thank you for having me. This is what a a great time. It's so great to meet y'all and uh, just nerd out on (laughs) this music that brings us so much joy.
1: Anytime. Good to have you. All right. So we're going out. On the song show you the way to go written and produced by gamble and huff arranged by bobby martin michael stated in his autobiography that he just didn't know why this wasn't a bigger hit and i gotta agree it's a good song and i uh, i think this is a really good example of the their abilities with group harmony that don't always get shown off in jackson's songs but this one definitely does it is this the one that they're all singing on Uh, I mean, Michael still takes the lead in a lot of it, but uh, like the the chorus and a lot of elements have really good group harmony going on.
0: And the videos for them, you'll see uh, Randy doing a really great conga drum mime. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Mm-hmm. And he, him and his cute little 15-year-old self. <laughs> He's so little. And the, the outfit's just like this very Afrofuturist. I just, I love what was going on with like the costumes at that time. It's just like, this is so wild that this was what, this is how folks were rocking. And they, you know, it was not at all like, oh, this is I, for irony's sake, you know, like we're, no. <laughs> we are coming out here with these outfits and they look like that. They're from another day and time yeah. that you all have not experienced yet. <laughs> and just wait for it. Yeah,
1: <laughs> absolutely. All right. With that, let's get into the final track. Thanks for listening. I am Sean Hartman. I'm Jeremy Ruggles. I'm Peter Cook.
4: And I am Lola Kinks. Thank you. Thanks Lola Kinks. <laughs> Ah,
3: Let me show you, let me show you